And a very good evening to you. Welcome to Monday's Richie Allen Radio Show, broadcasting live as usual from the heart of Salford City. It's great to be with you. So it is. Uncensored. Unfiltered. You're listening to Richie Allen on the world's most popular independent news radio show. It's the Richie Allen Show. Broadcasting live on richieallen.co.uk and multiple platforms around the world. And now, here's your host, Richie Allen. Yeah, you're very welcome. You're very welcome. Hope you had a fantastic weekend, wherever you happen to be, and you're in fine fettle for the coming week ahead. Joining me this hour to talk about the situation in Gaza, near Rafa. Uh, Ryan Christian, the last American vagabond, terrific broadcaster and writer. Uh, it's been a while since we heard from Ryan. I've invited him back uh, to talk about that situation, how it is playing in the United States, and much more besides uh, Ryan Christian uh, this hour. Don't miss him at uh, thelastamericanvagabond.com. And later on, Dr. Marcus De Bruyne returns to the programme. It is. It has been a while since we heard from Marcus. A lovely gentleman, a man of principle, a man of honour and integrity. We first met him some years ago after he resigned from the Irish Medical Council in protest at the way the Irish government handled care homes at the outset of the Covid scam. I, I call it a scam, right? He also closed his practice after refusing to administer Covid jabs. Marcus De Bruyne will join the programme a little bit later on in the second hour. So those are my guests today. As ever, you can reach out, you can join in, you can have a say. Send a comment to me via the website richieallen.co.uk or download the app and send an instant message to me here at the studio. The Richie Allen Show app is available on Google Play and also on Apple's App Store. If you're outside of the UK and it does tell you it isn't available in your territory, simply use a virtual private network and you will be able to download the app. It's pretty functional, pretty useful. Now, the health ministry in Gaza says that an Israeli strike on the city of Rafa last evening, killed 67 people. Now, hundreds of thousands of people we know are in Rafa. They have fled south in uh, in Gaza to Rafa. And this is after well, the bombardment of, of Gaza since Oct- October 7th last year, okay? Doctors have been telling the BBC the most popular question people have is, where can we go? From Israel's part, Israel claims, the government does, that it carried out a wave of strikes to rescue two hostages hostages even from the second floor of a building in Rafa. The Israeli military said the two hostages aged 60 and 72 men are in good medical condition. The aforementioned health ministry in Gaza says now 28,000 Palestinians have been killed, the majority, the majority of them women and children, and more than 67,500 have been injured since then. The current UK Foreign Secretary is David Cameron, and this is what he told the media a little bit earlier on today. We are very concerned about what is happening in Rafa, because let's be clear, the people there, many of them have moved four, five, six times before getting there 
and uh, it really, we think, is impossible to, to see how you can, can fight a war amongst these people. There's nowhere for them to go. Uh, they can't go south into Egypt, they can't go north and back to their homes because many have been destroyed. So we are very concerned about the situation and we want Israel to stop and think very seriously before it takes any further action. But above all, what we want is an immediate pause in the fighting and we want that pause to lead to a ceasefire a sustainable ceasefire without a return um, to further fighting. That's what should happen now. Uh, we need to get those hostages out, including the British nationals. We need to get the aid in. The best way to do that is stop the fighting now and turn that into a permanent sustainable ceasefire. You probably won't be surprised to learn that none of the assembled media asked David Cameron what would the British government be prepared to do? How far would the British government be prepared to go in order to compel the Israeli government to stop the fighting to stop the shooting and the bombing. They didn't ask him, of course. Now, the Palestinian ambassador to the UK, his name is Hussam Zomlot. He was on the BBC News Channel 90 minutes ago. He didn't pull any punches. It's killing fields. It's horror. It's carnage. It's genocide in every sense. Simple as that. To push people all the way to the very south of Gaza, as you just said, half of the population of Gaza are in Rafah now. This is the city of my birth. Uh, only last night, night, Israel has literally massacred from 60 to 100, and we don't know the exact number because still people are under rubble, including the family of my own, of my wife, uh, her aunt, uh, the husband, all the children, all the grandchildren are gone. Uh, 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 this is the plan from day one. The plan was depopulating Gaza. It's an ethnic cleansing plan, obvious. And after the ICJ ruling, clear that uh, uh, the crime of genocide is plausible, now Israel is officially on trial, what is the conversation here? And, and why are we discussing what is happening? What is happening is very clear. What we need to discuss is the responsibilities of responsible actors like the UK and what should we do to stop the, the genocide that is happening. Let's just take it back to what, what's happening. Israel would, would say that they have a, a right to find those remaining hostages and if, you know, if there hadn't been the situation on October the 7th, they wouldn't be in the situation where they're having to, to come in and take those hostages. Mr. Ambassador? Yeah, Israel has been saying this for 75 years. Hostages could have been released as we started a few months ago. Uh, the diplomatic uh, venue is open. There is international and regional initiative, Qatar, uh, US, Egypt, uh, uh, it's on the table. Uh, Netanyahu and the Israeli government does not want to retrieve the hostages. They want to use the moment to finish off the job they started. This is a situation. You don't, you don't think that there is any intention of them to try to get back hostages um, that that they they see that Hamas is is holding. They're they're not releasing. That they see this as the only way that they would be able to to get those Israeli people back. You can hear her heart isn't even in it. Really, they would have gotten their hostages long ago. And go back to the record. They killed many of their own hostages. They are not interested in the hostages. You, you don't there think that they formula. want their hostages? There is, there is a formula. There is a formula for hostage exchange, for prisoners exchange. It's been done before. It's been done not just in Israel, Palestine, everywhere. The Israeli government rejected that. It's clear. They wanted to go all the way. It's clear this is almost like we are dealing with Israel in a way that we should look at Israel as a, 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 drug, a drug addict. And the addiction here is for ethnic cleansing, depopulation, eradicating the Palestinian people. This has nothing to do with self-defense. But what, and what about, and what about October is, the 7th, though, and if, if and those is, attacks? Do, do, you think, do you think 
what has unfolded since October 7th has anything to do with October 7th? Nothing. Well, that would be the justification from, from, that... The, from, from, the, from, the, from, the, from day one, we said they are after the Palestinian people, Gailey. And this is clear. This is clear. Should I give you some accounts? Do we remember Hind, the, the six-year-old girl who was shouting and pleading for her mother to come and rescue her? She was traveling in a small car with her family. All of her family were murdered, and she was among corpses for 12 days. An Israeli tank saw them, saw the girl, saw everybody. It's life. This is a genocide that is being transmitted live. Stark that, isn't it? A genocide that is being transmitted live. Maybe the first time a genocide has been basically transmitted or broadcast in real time. The people who are being genocided are, are, are uh, literally documenting, filming their own execution. So the discussion should not be about the 7th of October. The discussion should, should be on the 75 years of the same, of the Palestinian people being pushed out of their homes, ethnically cleansed, like 1948, okay. two-thirds of the nation, and the West stopped giving Israel the drugs. We, we discussed the drug, drug addiction. Okay. And well, the drugs here is the weapons, is the arms, is the shielding in the UN and the ICJ and the Security Council. We want to see a UK position that is in line with responsibility and action, primarily the accountability and the sanction okay. and the stopping of weapons. We'll have to leave it there. Hussam Zomlot, thank you very much for coming. Yeah, get him off as quick as you can. Hussam Zomlot, the Palestinian ambassador to the UK. Right, so Suella Braverman is a recent Home Secretary, isn't she? She's no longer, she had to resign, is Braverman. She's been very vocal since resigning. She's written in the Telegraph, she's spoken on some of the Conservative media channels. She's after a change to the law in this country, a change that would give the government the power to ban protests before they take place. Okay, based on based on the idea that um, some hearty words might be shouted at the protests, so that people might chant slogans and people might be racist or, or, or whatever. She has categorised the hundreds of thousands of people, if not more, who have taken to the streets pretty much every weekend since October 7th, people calling for peace, calling for justice for Palestine. She has characterised them as being anti-British. You've heard this before, haven't you? Anti-British, um, hate speech mongers. Um, she said they take to the streets of the UK calling for jihad and uh, repeating slurs and anti-Semitic statements against the Jewish people. This isn't true, of course. Let's have a listen to one such person. Or who she'd have you believe is one such person. Um, again, out in force this weekend, pro-peace uh, and pro-Palestinian people, Freddie Vanson. Is a teacher, he's a musician, he's a poet. You'll hear a rough cut here because um, I had to cut away some music, but it was difficult. But I wanted you to hear this man. This is the guy that we should be afraid of. The type of person protesting on UK streets and in city centres every weekend. Have a listen. If you went to the funeral of every child that has died in Palestine, it'd take you over 25 years. Tomorrow, you go to a funeral. The next day, you go to funeral. And again, every day for over 25 years. I've supported the Palestinians for over 20 years now. Um, I've been to Palestine, to the West Bank, never to Gaza because of the siege. I've known for a long time that it was a prison camp, but not even a prison camp because that suggests that they are criminals. It is a concentration camp. For 20 years, they've been locked down. We've lost track. Over 11,000 children. I'm a teacher. 
and just one child imagining losing one. I don't care what anyone says, it's clearly a genocide. I'm going to be speaking every single week until the Palestinians are free and then my heart and my soul is with them every day. Inshallah, we will get freedom for the Palestinians. Yeah, I don't know about you, but he obviously hates his country, right? He's obviously a bigot and needs to be prevented going out every weekend. Let's, um, for the moment, leave that there. What should happen? Well, as Omelet said, it's the first time in history a genocide has been filmed in real time by the victims. And I've tweeted this today. I don't know why I bothered tweeting it. It's not something that's new. I've said it before. We don't live in a just... We don't live in... We don't, we don't have what they call the international rules-based order, which is an elitist phrase, right? Which means, basically, the rules-based order is we, the wealthiest uh, countries in the world with the biggest guns and the biggest tanks, we tell everybody else around the world what they should do. And if they don't do what we tell them to do, right, and, and then some, well, we, 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 we reduce their countries to a smouldering ruin. That's what the international rules-based order, based order means, in my opinion. But of course, what should happen is immediately the United Nations and NATO should, should issue an order to Israel to retreat, to take its army back inside Israeli territory um, and give them 24 hours to do that. And then put up what we call a no-fly zone, which is declare the airspace above Gaza to be basically a no-go zone. And any Israeli plane that attempts to fly in that airspace would be blown out of the sky by the NATO jets. Now, listen, I, I wasn't born yesterday. I'm not being naive. I, I know this isn't going to happen. And I know NATO, I know exactly what NATO is, what it does and why it exists, right? But that's what should happen if you lived in a, you, you know, the world they tell you you live in. The world they say we live in. Rules-based order. International cooperation. No. No genocide is going on in Gaza. They should put a no-fly zone up and sanction, as I said too many times, Israel back to the Stone Age. Punish it. Reduce it. Re impoverish the country to the point where the people of Israel say enough is enough. And they drown Netanyahu and his cabinet. Not literally. Metaphorically. Get rid of him. Um, Labour has defended standing by a candidate in the Rochdale by-election despite calls for him to be deselected because of comments he made about Israel. Now, you might have been following this today. In fact, if memory serves, it's been a long day, you know. The Papers podcast, I may very well have gotten into this. I think I did on the Papers podcast. It's been a long day, as I said. So this is Azar Ali who's running for Labour in a by-election in Rochdale. And various groups, the usual suspects, the campaign against anti-Semitism and the boards of deputies of British Jews who, who purport to represent the interests of, of Jewish people in the UK, but in fact they don't. They are Zionist attack dog organisations. They always have been, they always will be. The game is up, we know what they are. So they've come out in great force to try and get this guy deselected. Why? What did he say then? Well, he said, and he said this ages ago, he said this shortly after October 7th, he said, in his opinion, Israel had, quote, allowed the deadly attack by Hamas gunmen on October 7th. That's what he said. He said, I think Israel allowed it. And he went on to qualify that by saying, so that Israel could do 
what it is doing now in Gaza. That was his opinion, right? I'm not saying whether he's right or wrong, because I don't know. I have my own suspicions, and I've shared those suspicions on this very programme. But I don't know what is right and what is wrong. But it doesn't matter what is right and what is wrong. Surely if somebody has an opinion about a an event, a a violent event, a... A, a war, an attack, whatever you want to call it, surely people should be able to express their opinions. Well, apparently not. Here's Nick Thomas Simmons. Now, he's a Labour shadow minister. And he went on the media round this morning to defend Labour's decision not to kick this guy into touch. He was on Sky with Kay Burley. Have a listen. Nick Thomas Simmons. The comments were completely wrong. They were totally uh, unacceptable and they in no way represent the views of the Labour Party. What Councillor Ali has also said is that he apologises unreservedly. And I really, really regret this. I, I don't know this guy, Ali, but I know guys like him. You should never, ever apologise, ever. You should stand by, you should stand on your conviction. You should say, listen, I think there's some... You know, I think there's something very fishy about October 7th and how it happened and how it was allowed seemingly to happen. That is my opinion. Like it or lump it. If you don't like it, don't vote for me. If you do like it, vote for me. Piss off. That's what he should say. But of course, they panic and they apologise. He retracts the comments and he's also said, which I think is hugely important, that he understands now the gravity, the scale of the offence that's been caused. Offence? But who's offended? He said he thinks the Israeli government or the Israeli army allowed the Hamas militants, some would say terrorist militants, cross over the fence erected by Israel and go on a killing spree. He's saying he thinks they might have allowed it happen as the so uh, to provide the justification for what we're seeing now. Where's the huge offence there? Who's offended? and knows he needs to rebuild trust, huge task ahead of him him with the Jewish community. And that is what I would now expect him to get on to do. Why should the Jewish community accept his apology? Well, look, I take what Councillor Ali has said at face value. He said he fell for an online conspiracy theory and that... He fell for an online conspiracy theory. ...does not represent... Uh, his view, but he has to earn trust back. You know what he fell for, and we talked about this back in October, the Times of Israel and Haaretz ran opinion piece after opinion piece. It reflected the views of Israeli citizens who were absolutely aghast that this could happen when the watchers, the soldiers charged with observing what is happening on the other side of the fence when they were telling the IDF commanders something very massive is going to go down. You need to be doing something about it. And those people who were given the responsibility to determine if something was going to happen, they were told if they didn't shut up, they'd be court-martialed. Not only that, the Egyptian military informed the IDF and informed the Israeli government that an attack was imminent. And yet, after the Hamas militants got inside and began, as we're told, as we have been told, right, you believe what you want to believe, I don't know, uh, began to kill Israelis, it was six hours before anybody showed up to do anything about it. Do you believe that? 
And that's exactly what this guy must have been saying back in October. This uh, guy who will be, or at least at this moment in time, is slated to stand for Labour in Rochdale. But the way Nick Thomas Simons or Simmons is speaking, it's where this guy had murdered the baby Jesus. He has to now do that engagement uh, that he needs to do to try to rebuild that trust. I also take into account... What trust? Imagine if he's wrong. Who cares if he's wrong? Even if he's wrong. Even if, it, even if he is wrong. Even if Israel didn't stand down. Even if it was, as Kevin Barrett would have you believe, my old pal and sparring partner, a great triumph for Hamas. Whatever the case is, isn't he entitled to say, well, I think this might have happened? Madness this, isn't it? Two. What Dame Louise... Let's leave it as 20 minutes past the hour. I don't want to hear any more Nick Thomas Simons. don't want to hear any more of him. And I had some more audio, but I'm going to run out of time. Yeah, let's listen to the Campaign Against Anti-Semitism's Gideon Falter. Now, I've had a few run-ins with the Campaign Against Anti-Semitism over the years. Gideon Falter. This isn't an organised... This is a charity, which again claims to be rooting out anti-Semitism in the UK because it is of great harm to Jewish people. There isn't any anti-Semitism in the UK. None. These people work for Israel. That's what they do. They are there to pressurise people, anybody, in the media or in politics, who might dare step out of line and take an anti-Israeli position on anything. Let's hear Gideon Falter. It's pretty alarming, isn't it? Because Sakir Starmer, when he took over the Labour Party, obviously took over from Jeremy Corbyn, um, and in his very first speech said that he promised to tear out the poison of anti-Semitism by the roots. And he's actually been pretty good on this stuff. He suspended Diane Abbott, he suspended Kate Ossimore and various other people um, in his parliamentary party. For having some opinions. Who've been found to say uh, outrageous things about Jews and, and voiced all sorts of extreme uh, comments. What we're seeing, though, in Rochdale is a completely different situation. Here we've got somebody who, um, who who's standing for Parliament, who Labour is putting up as one of its uh, MP candidates, who has said that the worst anti-Semitic massacre since the Holocaust was perpetrated uh, sort of with the, the willing connivance or deliberately by Israel. No, no, no. He said he 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 said exactly his exact words were that in his opinion Israel had allowed it to happen. He didn't say that Israel carried it out themselves. He said they allowed it to happen. As in Jews just perpetrated the worst massacre of Jews since the Holocaust. It's a disgusting thing to say. It's a blood libel. It's a conspiracy theory. And yet Labour are saying, we're going to stick with this guy. It's not a disgusting thing to say at all. The Israeli government is a government. It's a government. And like every other, like every other government around the world, it is full of corrupt, disgusting people. And, and maybe at the moment it looks like, because Netanyahu is particularly disgusting, I would agree, you might, you might make the case that there, there isn't a more despicable or disgusting government. But there are, believe me. The government in this country is just as bad or worse, as is the government in Washington at the moment. It's ridiculous, this idea that you can't criticise a government or make an allegation against a government. It's madness is what it is. And I go back to what I said a few minutes ago. It's very important. The guy... Why, the Times of Israel has said this, why were the watchers threatened with court-martial when they said the attack was imminent? Why did the IDF ignore the Egyptian warnings? From the time it started to the response, it took six hours. How is that possible? Explain it. And then, then you must ask, who benefited most 
from what happened on October 7th. And you can't make the case that Hamas or the Palestinian Authority or the people of Palestine benefited. They have not benefited. They are being genocided. The sole beneficiary of the attack on October 7th is the Israeli Prime Minister and his government. So why is the media here, here today tearing strips off of senior Labour people, right, what, haranguing them about why this guy hasn't been kicked out of the race? Why isn't the media asking why or how did this guy conclude the Israelis stood down? And as I said before, so what if he's wrong? Who cares? The idea that his remarks constitute a grievous slight or a grievous injury to the Jewish community is madness. He has stated an opinion. And opinions are like arseholes. We've all got one. Doesn't matter. Right? Leave it up to Jewish people in Rochdale. I was going to vote for that, Ali. But that dipstick thinks the Israelis let the attack happen. I won't vote for him. That's how it should be. Anyway, 24 and a half minutes past the hour. If you're going to virtue signal, um, virtue signaling is a wonderful thing. We've been paying more attention to it in recent years than, than maybe we, we did previously. You've got to think it out if you're going to virtue signal. Think it out and plan your little monologue, your preachy little monologue. Plan it properly so you don't make yourself look like a bit of an idiot. Uh, there's a guy who works for LBC. You might have heard of him. He's got a beard. Nothing wrong with beards. I have a half a beard myself at the moment. And uh, the guy's name is James O'Brien. London School of Economics tells you all you need to know. Loves the virtue signal. He thought today, even though immigration is not a big deal today in the press, he thought he'd have a go at little Britainers who don't like foreigners. And he kind of got himself tied up in knots. And, well, it amused me. And if it amuses me, it goes in the monologue. But one of the things that I found most upsetting is the word that I'd use because... Upsetting. I, I heard these words coming from the mouths of people that I had once considered friends, possibly, certainly colleagues. Um, why can't we train our own? I never understood that. <laughs> He's talking about medical people. He's never understood when people say, why can't we train our own? And the wonderful virtue, the king of virtue signalling has lost relationships with people he once thought of as friends because they would say, why don't we train our own doctors and nurses? I think it's a legitimate question. What else does he say after this? It gets even sillier. Such is the current state of the system that we have to beg, borrow and steal doctors and nurses from other countries. And, and I just don't know why. Right, we've got to hear that one again because I think he just justified the question why don't we train our own? Such is the current state of the system that we have to beg, borrow and steal <laughs> doctors and nurses from other countries. We do. And, and I just don't know why. Because we're not training our own, you bearded twat. That could be the answer, you know. And then, has he ever heard of a brain drain? It's not great when people train to be nurses and doctors in parts of the world where they need doctors and nurses, maybe. Where, where they could do with their trained doctors and nurses sticking around for a few years. They call it the brain drain, right? And then, and then, 
And then... This question is inspired by Colin, who's been in touch to say, my work colleague, a few... They've made this up now. I don't believe Colin has been in touch. A lot of presenters do this, especially in the mainstream media. They invent comments that have not really come in. Colin, who's been in touch to say, my work colleague, a few years back, said the reason I voted for Brexit was because when I was lying in hospital being treated, all of the staff were foreign. His then severe cancer is now in remission thanks to the care he received. So, as a side order... I don't believe that. I don't believe that Colin was kicking off about the fact that so many of the doctors in the hospital were foreign as they were helping uh, bring him into remission with his cancer. I just don't buy it, me. What happens when your racist relative go oh, God. goes to hospital and discovers the absolute essential nature of high levels of immigration? What actually happens? Do they come out like coals, mate? complaining about the people that are literally keeping them alive or do they have some sort of change in their attitude to immigration in general? What a beautiful bit of virtue signalling that is. When your racist relative goes to hospital and they're looked after by all these foreigners. You see, James O'Brien is what we used to call in Ireland a prize prick because he knows that most people are not impacted by immigration when they go to the hospital. They're impacted by low-skilled, low-wage immigration in their towns and cities and villages. That's where it hits them. It hits them in the pocket and it hits them in terms of their quality of life. And he knows this, but he's a price prick. It's his job to virtue signal and to be holier than thou and to be a great humanitarian criticise people for criticising immigration and invent stories about people who go to hospital and they're still racist even though the coloured doctors get them back on their feet. When people criticise or challenge immigration and the numbers of people coming into the country, it's usually because it is directly affecting their bottom line. Whereas doctors working in the Salford Royal Hotel or in the Manchester Royal Infirmary, they're no problem. They're not causing anybody any issues whatsoever. Right? Anyway, have I made my point? I think I have. 29 minutes past the hour, music, and then Ryan Christian, the last American vagabond, will be on the programme, and we're going to talk about Israel and more with him. This is the Rolling Stones and Angry. Why you angry? Music from the Rolling Stones, that's angry. It is uh, 29 minutes to the top of the air. Just before we welcome Ryan back to the programme. Let me read a couple of comments coming in. Hundreds of comments coming in through the app. Thank you. Ian says, criticism of the government of Israel isn't anti-Semitism. It's a disgusting untruth peddled to exert fear and control. It is disgusting, says Ian. Hello to Brian in North Yorkshire. He says, it was clear to me from day one that Israel allowed it to happen on October 7th. For God's sake, do we really believe that young men on hang gliders and motorcycles outwitted F-16 fighters. That's an interesting point. Hello to Kieran in in St Albans. Kieran, it's a long message. I'll come back to it in a moment or a bit later on if you don't mind. Uh, good evening to Lewis who says, once again we see the massive power of the Jewish lobby in the UK. Nothing will change here even if Labour uh, gets in. And finally, before we welcome Ryan back, Bill asks, why does Israel, which is a tiny country, have so much global power? Some have said because of the invisible ley line vortexes, which 
exist in the Middle East. That's Bill. Thanks for that, Bill. My guest this hour. Little introduction. He's been uh, gracing our programme for many years. He's a writer and a broadcaster, uh, challenging the mainstream, the legacy media narratives. He's been doing it for years. The Last American Vagabond.com is a terrific website. Get on there and listen to his podcast, read his articles, and his contributors, Ryan Christian. Welcome back to the show. How are you, buddy? Are you well? I'm good, brother. It's always a pleasure to be here. You're, it's an honour for me always. Tell me this. Did you have a Super Bowl party last night? Did you stay up till the small hours of the morning? No. What's funny is I actually, I, I did go. We had, a, we had a poker game that went alongside the Super Bowl. I, I've, I used to be really, like I used to love football. And I mean, I do I love the sport. But the actual, as many football, uh, you know, enthusiasts will tell you these days, the, the NFL has ruined the sport. But so I, I ultimately ended up playing a game alongside of it and was kind of keeping an eye on the game and then left before it even finished. So no, I wasn't really paying you attention. You weren't paying too much attention. Sounds like a yeah. thriller. <laughs> Sounds like a thriller all, all the same. Listen, thanks, buddy, um, for, for, for doing it. First things first. Um, so, so David Cameron, the UK Foreign Secretary and the Prime Minister of this country, the language, look, I'm not naive. I certainly know you're not naive, but the language is a little bit stronger in terms of we know that the world is holding its breath, at least the, the decent people on planet Earth are holding their breath watching Rafa and what's happening there. The language appears to be stronger coming from Cameron, from, from, um, from, from Sunak, and even from US President Joe Biden. Is it naive to think that and that it'll make any difference? Or, or what say you? What do you say, Ryan? No, I, I mean, I don't. I think it is what's happening, but I think there's more context around it. I, I would, I don't. I mean, you can call me a pessimist. I'm very jaded about what these anybody in politics or any governmental authority. I don't believe they're actually fighting for your interest. That's just my personal opinion. But and you know, who knows if there's a you know a special circumstance? But in this case, I don't think that the Bidens of the world care at all about suddenly doing the right thing. I think that's evidenced by the fact that they've allowed four months of ongoing, obvious genocide named to have merit by the world court and still continue, even after stating these things, to arm the group committing the genocide that they're now criticizing. So I don't, it's completely hollow. So my, the way I take this with the corporate media and a lot of the government entities, most of whom have been blindly supporting this so far, why they're suddenly starting to, you know, give some reports about how they might have committed war crimes or Biden very quietly and almost as if he's yawning, saying that they've gone too far. Right. Very. I think those statements are indicative of the fact that they are aware they've lost control of the narrative. They're aware that I mean, we look at Joe's party explicitly. They call they, his own party calls him Genocide Joe. So they know they've lost control of this. They know they've lost support of most of the people. I think that goes for the world, mind you. I think that most countries, the peoples of countries, the majorities are very aware of what's really going on. So they're trying to just save face. The media aspect of it is trying to not lose the influence they might need to hold on to for future manipulations, as I, I would see it. And the Bidens of the world are just trying to convince you at the last moment, the you know final hour here, that they are not complicit in genocide and they're on the right side of history. It's going to fail. And if the Israeli government, if Netanyahu wants to press a ground invasion of Rafa, he will, and there will be no consequences for it. Or, or, or could there be wider regional consequences, Ryan, in terms of might you right. expect might you expect something from um, the, the Iranian administration? Might, might the Saudi Arabian, um, I, I hate to say regime, I don't want to use their words, but these governments, might they react negatively if we see what we suspect might be the, 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 the ground invasion of Rafa, which would be catastrophic? 
Yeah. Well, first, I, I would argue that regime does have a definition, and the Saudi Arabian government absolutely fits that it definition. Fits it, yeah. It's just the fact that our governments use them pretty broadly for things that aren't, yeah. a, you know, fit that definition. But the Rafa conversation, first of all, for those that are, you know, becoming rightly so aware of this focal point. This, this circumstance has already happened more than once, right? It's currently still going on in Khan Yunus, which was the previous safe location. They're already bombing in Rafa. They're already bombing the connective areas between Rafa and Khan Yunus while claiming that any place is safe is a joke right now. And they've continued to do this at every step of the way. Even Egypt, the United Nations, even corporate media to certain degrees, even the Times of Israel called out in the beginning in October that they told people to go to the Rafa crossing and then immediately bomb that crossing. That's right. So it's very clear that they've been doing this the entire way and everyone seems aware of that. So now it's become the worst of the worst because there's no other place for them to go. They basically kettled them into the corner with the obvious objective because of the plan that they that was leaked and many statements by administrative or officials of Israel that they want to move them into Egypt. They want to displace all of them. The settlements are going to be built. They're having conferences. There's blueprints. There's funding allotted. It's very clear what's going on. Our international community doesn't want to admit that. But my, the issue here is that they're going to go forward. And my, you want my opinion? Israel's going to do this no matter what. Even if even if right now the United States pulls all funding and weaponry and support, which would immediately, I mean, to a certain degree, bring an end to this. I argue that Israel's committed to this right now and the current administration. And so this is going to be a catastrophe. It's a massacre that's waiting to happen. And I argue that there already are consequences. There will be consequences, but it might not be what we want. I, you know, I, I hope to see people go to prison for stuff like this. I don't think that's where we are right now, but the world has shifted. Right. The, 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 the world court ruling, which I think hopefully will pan out in the same way when, at the full ruling. But people are very aware of what they're doing. And, and, and the, as you even said, the Joe Bidens of the world are starting to walk it back. So this won't be the same going forward. As many people have pointed out, Netanyahu in particular is hell bent on keeping this going because most people think he's going to go to prison when this stops. And I think he's one of them. And so it's, it's hard to see that there won't be consequences. I just don't think it'll be exactly what we want. Because let's remember, there's a lot more people than just Netanyahu or Biden involved in allowing this and pushing it forward. And do you think that's the plan? The The plan is, and, and, and please God, it doesn't come to pass. Please God, it doesn't work. Yes. But the plan is, is, is the plan to, to, rid, to rid Palestine of every last Palestinian and then over a period of years repopulate and rebuild with Israeli citizens and bring Jews in from overseas. I mean, it sounds absolutely ridiculous, but that's what happened, of course, well, back in 1947. Do you, do you think that's the plan? Well, I mean, first, I do think that's part of it, and I don't know if everyone yeah. involved has the same mindset, but to be clear, that wasn't just 1947. I mean, that has been the ongoing statement and, and agenda of the illegal settlements ever since. That's what they're doing, bringing yeah. in Jews from New York to come settle these areas that they've just recently stolen from Palestinians and even from areas that were allotted under the 1967 borders for the two-state solution. So it's it's illegal even in the eyes of the United States, and they've said as much. So it's just that that's never stopped. So to, to, to your point, I, it, it's not even a, a logical leap to argue that it's going to continue into Gaza. And to be very clear, again, this is happening. I, I don't know if everybody in the Israeli government agrees with this or wants it to be public, but people like Ben Gavir were literally witnessed dancing and celebrating at the conference they held about the new settlements to be built in Gaza. And they even have leaders of their illegal settlement movements speaking up about how if they can just keep the food from going in, they'll starve so they'll be forced to move. That was a public statement that she made in three different interviews. So it's, it's on the record. 
But the point is we just have the failing corporate media and the people in authority positions that pretend like this isn't obvious. You know, so I think it's obvious that's part of it. So your second, your, I think your first part of the question I'll answer second is that I don't think everybody is of the same mindset. And that even goes back to one of the points somebody asked in the beginning about whether there was foreknowledge to all of this, right? Is I just, I, if, if I had to put a pin in it, it strikes me as the most logical that there were elements of, let's say, the religious Zionism party, which is the most extreme element of the current government, which, again, all of them seem to want to get rid of all Palestinians, though, is that I think it's possible that one of these elements allowed this to happen to some degree. But that doesn't mean that every other part no. of the government was aware of that. And this is just a theory that it seems like you could even look at it like a coup in a way, you know, because I do think that there is very obvious division about how this should go forward. And this gets into like Netanyahu as indictments and whether like, I mean, for example, Hillary Clinton just spoke up and said that Netanyahu is a bad leader and he's bad for Israel. and He should be removed. Hillary Clinton, of all people. And I think that's simply about trying to pretend he's the only problem to maintain the same agenda with people that are behind him, which arguably are even more extreme than he is. So it's all just kind of a game of a shell game, right? But it's important to see that not everybody there, I think, has the same opinion. Can you explain to our listeners, at least your own theory, as I know it's a very complex question, this, there are many answers to it, but what what is in it for the United States, the UK, France, Germany, the European Union, what is in it for them in not dealing with Israel, in allowing Israel? You know, you mentioned earlier, and you made a great point about how the settlements have been going on for decades. We know this. I don't know how many UN resolutions were passed, dozens in any, in any case, but, but never, there was never any teeth, Ryan, so there wasn't, there was never any teeth because they, they were never prepared to impose sanctions, proper economic sanctions on Israel. But what's in it for the West in protecting Israel? Do you have any yeah. idea what's in it for them? Yeah, well, I mean, I can give you my opinions on it. I, I think that it, it, it's it's changed over the years. I think that if there ever was a, a benefit, I do think there was, at least in the mindset of the politicians, to uh, allowing is the Zionist entity to create its own territorial dimensions. I think that today it's nothing, which is kind of crazy to think about. Like, li I think that right now, what you, my honest opinion is that the Israeli apparatus, the intelligence apparatus has some kind of influence or or in, uh, influence is the best word over the outcome of policy in other countries. And, you know, people love to make that a racist sentiment. It's not. I, it, it doesn't matter whether we're talking about Jewish people or Christian people. The point is a foreign government on the very clearly has an overwhelming influence on the outcome of policy in this country. And I think that what we're watching is, is that exerted to its max right now. Because I think before this, it's very obvious that they were the Israeli government was getting away with the most ridiculous lies about whether Israel was ever or, uh, Palestine was ever occupied, whether it ever existed, whether everybody there was a terrorist, like the most ridiculous things that were blindly followed. But today that's shifted away because Israel belligerently went full genocide right after what happened. I guess thinking that everybody would back them on that, and it shook people free from that. You know, so I I I really do think I think it's obvious that. There's nothing in it for any of these governments that want to support them right now. And that, may, that then the question is, why then are they doing it? At the very least, whether you think there's a benefit, look at the detriment. Again, look at Joe Biden and how much he's lost just to maintain this. So my same question, how, why? Where is his political advisor screaming that you're losing everything to support this? It doesn't make any sense because the peoples of these countries clearly do not support what's happening. So again, going back to the earlier part, I mean, you could argue that they, you know, from let's just say from like a British perspective in the original mandate Palestine, 
that maybe they thought this would give them better control over the area, siding with this group that would be willing to carry. Like, let's remember, the Zionist, the Lehigh Party, the Ergun Party, these, these were extremists. They were, they were even bombing the British government and elements of it to get what they wanted. They tried to align themselves with the Nazi Party more than once. I mean, it's, it's crazy stuff. And this is all, you can look it up on Wikipedia. Yeah, it's These were there. the foundations of Zionism. Yeah. So I think that they might have seen a benefit there. But going forward, I mean, it's, it's all at the expense of their own agendas, their own political standing, their influence for Israel. You're listening to... Uh, Ryan Christian, the last American vagabond.com is the website. I know you know this. And uh, Ryan is on Twitter at TLAV. Okay. Uh, check him out. We've got him for another 10, 15 minutes tops. I want to ask you about your president. I, I've never made a prediction the likes of which I'm going to make now with you ever in my career because I'm, I'm a journalist. I'm a reporter. I speak to researchers and other journalists like yourself, but I don't make um, sensational claims. And this isn't one. But I have a feeling that either Joe Biden or Donald Trump will not be alive in November of this year. Now, this is not some wacky conspiracy theory or idea that I've dreamt up. Um, something strikes me. I've had this feeling for a while. Biden looks, sh he looks shook to his bone marrow. I mean, to say the guy's impaired is, is, is the understatement of the year of the century, maybe. And again, I don't want to be accused of being ageist. We're all go going to get old. We're all going to grow old. But the guy looks in pretty bad shape, doesn't he? Um, Trump doesn't appear to be in the best shape either. And I have a feeling, my friend, that you might be dealing with one of the biggest stories you've ever dealt with. Um, this, and, and you've covered some massive stories. One of them won't make it. I, can you imagine, put, put aside my wacky theory, can you really imagine Joe Biden debating Donald Trump in, yeah. in, in, in the run-up to the election this coming year? You couldn't see it, could you, Ryan? No. I mean, he, he, I, I couldn't see Joe Biden debating any, you know, <laughs> an inanimate object, let alone Donald Trump. But <laughs> I, I, w I would also just really quickly, I'd point out for those that want to follow me on Twitter, it is uh, TLA Vagabond. Excuse that, me. Just so, for those who find it. You're right, but yeah, TLA I mean, Vagabond. right now, I mean, Joe Biden is and it's it's not ages to point out somebody has something that they are. I mean, it, it's it's about dementia, not that he has dementia because he's old. Right. He obviously has an impairment in regard. I mean, you don't freeze up in the middle of your sentences. I mean, compared to someone like McConnell, for example, like we all can see these like deer in the headlights, you've lost your complete, you don't even know where you are at that moment. And, you know, anyone that's dealt with somebody going into their later years of life, you've dealt with these things, you know the signs. It's very clear. And that's not to say that somehow means that he's not a good leader. I think he's not a good leader because he's not a good leader. It has nothing to do with the fact that he can't think straight. But I think overall, Donald Trump would work circles around him. And that's just because Donald Trump is a you know, I, I'll give credit where it's due. And I think Donald Trump is savvy in certain parts of this game. And I think one of them is being able to to verbally manipulate the conversation, even if, frankly, I think it's obvious when he does it, it still has an effect that wins people over. And Biden just wouldn't be able to keep up. I think that's obvious. And then I, I forget the other part of the question. Yeah, yeah. It was, it was just about like the idea that, you know, he, he maybe wouldn't stand. So so forget my idea that one of them might pass oh, no, away. I did want to comment on that. Actually, yeah. the, the that's interesting because there's a lot of, of of discussion around things like this, like like these very ultimate, like a the election won't happen at all, or yeah. you know, like and I think there's a I think it's first and foremost, and it's indicative of where American minds are, right? We're all very you know absolute right now, like everything's coming down, something is building, it's all going to be bad, like and that's is that because we're supposed to feel that way? Partly, I do think so. I think that's kind of an engineered feeling. But it's also just because things are pretty crazy, you know, and so it wouldn't surprise me if something was done like I would argue done in that regard, like it wouldn't be organic if that happened. But just as a hypothetical, you know, I, I think that it's 
in, if there was ever a time where that some, something like that would happen, it seems like right now would make sense. Let's put it that way. Yeah, <laughs> it's yeah. Pretty crazy. And, and look, it, it, might, it might not necessarily need to be a death. Maybe at some stage there might be some sort of concession on behalf of Biden or his family. Maybe in the summer they might just concede that, yeah, the president isn't well. And yeah, he isn't yeah, going, and he isn't going to right stand. Now. And tell us this, Ryan, who would be the favourite then to take on Trump? Would it be the vice president? You know, no. I think Kamala Harris is like one of the most hated politicians in history. I think yeah. <laughs> like I'm, I'm kind of facetiously saying that, but she's very, very unpopular with both sides of the paradigm and people that see that it's illusion. But I, I think that right now, if I had to guess, I think that it seems obvious that that RFK has the most influence, I would argue, over all different spectrums of the party. I still continue to maintain, and I've said this from day one in his stance around this, that his position on Israel is indefensible. It's morally indefensible. So I don't know how anybody can see, or at least the the clear point for me is I don't know why you wouldn't question his, his other things he may be saying because of his stance on that. It's just yeah. kind of crazy to me how obvious that is. But he does got a good stance on other things. But I know Vivek is pretty popular. And then I... for. <laughs> Some weird anomaly, which I don't I feel like is not even true. It's like a manufactured illusion that Nikki Haley somehow has influence. I mean, she's like some neocon Frankenstein. And I don't know how anybody sees <laughs> a benefit in that, but uh, yeah. but seemingly does. But I would probably go with RFK to me because he's probably going to give the best uh, presented. He'll present the best against Trump back and forth on the stage, I would argue. It's a great point you make. And it's very mature of you. But then you've been around the block for years. You're a journalist. It, it is morally indefensible, of course it is, but at the same time, there are probably some people alive today because of RFK Jr. And that's, he's, yeah, he's got some exactly. credit in the bank, doesn't he, in saying yeah. that. I wanted to ask you this, and whenever you're on, the time flies by when you're on, um, Ryan is the last American vagabond. The website's brilliant, thelastamericanvagabond.com, and that T-L-A vagabond, he's on Twitter, thousands of followers, uh, get involved. He's tweeting, he's writing, he's publishing and broadcasting every day. What an interesting story developing, and it gets lost, of course, because there are so many important things happening. But the story out of Venezuela and this plot to kill President Maduro, allegedly by a vocal critic of the government, a woman called um, uh, San Miguel. Um, they've been trying to kill Maduro and they, they tried and maybe they succeeded to kill Hugo Chavez. This is just my opinion, of course. You feel free to p- poke holes in my series, buddy. I've got very thick skin here. But um, interesting that Maduro is still there. He endures, you know, despite the sanctions and despite the attacks by the global media and, 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 and Western democracies, he's still there. And this woman uh, was arrested on Friday, apparently in a pl- plot to kill him, um, vocal critic of his government. Is that significant? What do you make of that? And the BBC seems to be ramping up its coverage of this particular story today, which sometimes makes me suspicious as to what else yeah. they did not want to cover. What do you reckon? Yeah, it's, I have, that's a story I haven't been too immersed in. I have seen that, but I haven't really dove into it too deep. I, I plan on looking further into yeah, her and connections one. there. But I could tell you right now that I've been covering that st- for, you know, for, for quite a long time, like long before pe- many people were even really talking about, like when Venezuela really became like the biggest threat to our democracy. Yeah. Right? Before that, I was really, it, it's important to understand how long the, the U.S. government in particular has been manipulating this country for its own benefit. But, you know, I, and I'm never of the mind that Maduro or any government for that matter is like the good guy versus the bad guy. They're yeah. all capable of doing things with more power. But I think what's obvious, first of all, is that they, they've tried to overthrow. Again, to your point, going back to Chavez and even before. Yes, they tried to kill him. Yes, they tried overthrew him. More, in fact, successfully once, but it was only very briefly and he went right back to power. But they have been doing this a very long time. And from Maduro's time forward. 
it was provable. I mean, during that whole back and forth with Guaido, remember that they were caught on video with the Guaido people throwing Molotov cocktails at the aid right. truck. Very interesting with the Israel conversation and pretending that, oh, Maduro's trying to stop the aid. And it turned out that truck was full of barbed wire and wood. And this was covered even by corporate media, right? So it's, it's weird overlaps. The point was they were trying to set him up from the very beginning. They were starving this country into, you know, which again, is the same thing they do everywhere, acting like they're fighting for freedom, starving the very people they're trying to save. What's interesting in the dynamic, and of course we're rushed, there's a whole lot to cover in that time frame that it's interesting that Guaido was the president, right? That was the absurd argument, the democratic president, even though it wasn't an election. But then, then jumping forward past a lot again, all of a sudden there became a very interesting need for oil. And then all of a sudden we're like, well, we're going to work with with Maduro again. And Guaido just doesn't matter anymore. Doesn't matter. How little they care about even the so biggest threat to our democracy, unless we care about and need something. It's pathetic. It's pathetic. Go ahead. It, it is Ryan. Yeah, no, we've we've got about five minutes left, Thompson. Oh, well, Listen, one the one last thing, just to finish my point, is do. that so going the last point to answer your point there about the assassination. My mindset would be that this is this is just an, another of a long string of attempts to try to get rid of the person they don't want there. But today it's interesting because of they do seem to need him for other reasons. But that has drifted into the background. So maybe we're back to seeing Venezuela be necessary for other reasons. Because remember, gold, lithium, there's a lot of things they need there. Yeah, I wish people would really take a hard look at the likes of Hugo Chavez and what he was trying to yeah. do for the for the people of Venezuela and even Absolutely. go back to Chile and Salvador Allende and how they, they had to be stopped. But Ryan, I, I'm going to finish today with some comments for you by our listeners who are engaged big time. Ryan Christian, our guest, G-Man asks, Richie, could you ask Ryan his thoughts on Gavin Newsom, the Californian gov- governor? Is he a dark horse, Ryan? What do you think? Oh, he's I, he's a globalist maniac as far as I'm concerned. I mean, the guy is kind of the one that always seems to jump ahead of the curve and do the worst thing before anybody else does. Usually, I think in a way that like challenges the narrative, like he he exposes things because he wants to be the one out in front doing things like we saw during COVID. But yeah, I, I don't think this is a good person. I think Gavin Newsom is dangerous, uh, like most politicians. But yeah, not somebody I think we should be hoping becomes more, no. gets more power. He's in the, he's from the Trudeau school of thought, isn't he, this guy? Yeah. Andy's yeah. in Aberdeenshire, got some lovely exotic locations today. Ryan, he says, Richie, you might mention to Ryan, I had heard there were huge oil fields offshore near Gaza. BP mm. has a big stake in this. I heard it a year ago, but unsubstantiated. But it might explain why countries like the UK are backing Israel, because there are billions to be made. The oil fields, yeah. Yeah. Hundred percent. No, that's not unsubstantiated. The United Nations put out a document about that. There's uh, hundreds of billions. That's the estimation of both uh, oil and and, and and natural gas, and that's that's a fact. And so Israel clearly has designs on that. I did I did a little focus on that actually recently in regard to the border as well and kind of other things that overlapped. But it's interesting because remember they shut down Biden shut down uh, exportation of LNG from Texas or rather the whole country, but it affected Texas more than anything. I just thought there might've been a connection there, but either way, yeah, that's, I don't think that's the only thing. I think it's about much larger dynamics, but I guarantee that plays a factor. And final point from Patricia in Zurich, who says, Richie, to Ryan's point, I think the reason they support Israel is money. Money talks and too many people in Western governments have sold their soul to the Zionists. And there's no doubt she's right. They spend the Israeli lobby. I, I don't know if there's an official figure in terms of the money it spends, but it spends... You'll remember 15, 20, 15 years ago, Peter Oborn, who wrote for The Telegraph for years, he made a documentary for Channel 4 called Dispatches, and he made a documentary about the Israeli lobby. 
they spend fortunes, don't they, Ryan? Oh, it's incredible. And and that's the crazy. Do you remember? I think I don't know if it was AOC or somebody, but there was a moment where one of these people stood up and and literally said the Israeli lobby spends money on politicians to influence their policy, like something like benign. And they lost their minds and they went out of their way to go. You're accusing them of influence. And I'm like, that's literally what lobbying is. I'm like, you, you just describe right. what lobbying is. And it's offensive if you say Israel lobbies. Like it's it just shows you how sensitive they are to the obvious, which is that, yes, through what is arguably a legal process, which it shouldn't be. I think lobbying is one of the biggest problems there. That's legal bribing is what it is for people that don't know. But so lobbyists are giving politicians money so they hopefully achieve an outcome. The point is that's all that they really drive, all that really drives their policy. And yes, the Israel, the, the like APAC and these different groups are, I mean, it's overwhelming the amount of money they put in these pockets. And yes, that does have an influence. And I think to my earlier point, that's what we've come around to see. And it's not just lobbying. Let's not forget that like Epstein, for example, we love to pretend like this is kind of like borderline conspiracy theory, but we all know this was an admitted and, and even corporate media discussed topic. This was a sexual blackmail network. And let's not forget that even Acosta admitted that he had ties with Mossad and CIA. So that is what we're talking about. Stuff like that, as well as just direct financial influence and then political threats, manipulation. By the way, this is what all lobbying, all governments do. But the Zionist influence is overwhelming. It's, we have to acknowledge that. It's not about race. It's not about racist comments. It's about an obvious fact. It's just about the truth. Just before we say goodbye, did you win a few bucks in the poker last night? What sort of a poker face do you have? Are you any good? <laughs> I did. I, did. You I, I almost doubled up, but yeah, it was it was a fun game. And I, I, I love poker. It's just not much poker to be had in Tennessee. Is there not? I, I'm not too familiar with the rules of it, but I would have the worst poker face in the world. So if I <laughs> if I picked up my hand, Ryan, and had three or four queens, I'd just start laughing. and that, that, That's the yeah. end of it there and then. You can come play with me anytime, Ryan. Anytime, exactly. <laughs> Come here and I tell you, uh, first time this year, it's good to have you back and uh, I look forward to speaking okay. to you again throughout the year. The Last American, Vagabond.com, sadly uh, rare these days, excellent journalism and broadcasting. Thanks, Ryan. Have a great day, buddy. Thanks, brother. You too. Speak soon. Ryan Christian, The Last American, Vagabond.com, at TLA Vagabond on Twitter. Always good to have him on. Yeah. Yeah. I used to play 30s. You know, and if you know 30s, which is a game which um, revolves around having trump cards, you know, and if I had plenty of trump cards like the five or the jack or the knave, I'd start laughing. <laughs> so I would <laughs> just start laughing out loud when I was a kid. No poker face. You can read what's going on on my face just by looking at me. Uh, hello to Diane. Hello, Diane, who says, Richie, I got news today about someone close to her family who died suddenly. A bleed behind the eye. She was 40, only 40, says Diane. This isn't over yet either. Genuinely sorry to hear about that. A bleed behind the eye. And Diane, you're mature enough like me. You never know. It, it could be because these thing, things do happen outside of vaccination. But of course, we're bound to wonder now because we're hearing about so many of these incidents and because the jabs are in play. So thanks for that. And um, that's very bad luck to, uh, to the person involved. And you'd almost kind of hope it wasn't the jabs. You know, it's, it's so horrible, isn't it? Faisal says the West has been fighting for a beachhead in the Middle East for a thousand years. 
This is the latest absurd religious excuse, he says. Baird says, I wonder when Israel is going to blast the Temple Mount. Thanks for that. And Pandora says, these these are comments being made on the website, by the way. Did anybody watch the Super Bowl um, or Superb Owl? Well done. Ritual opening and halftime ceremonies. I didn't. But Pandora says there is usually clues or there usually are clues in such sporting events, just like the Olympic opening ceremonies, the CERN, uh, particle accelerator ceremony and all of that. I haven't looked at it. I probably won't. But uh, there are people better informed when it comes to symbolism than I am. They'll be watching it and no doubt will be posting about it in the coming days. Hello to Jim, who says, is James O'Brien looking in the mirror at himself when he speaks? Gaza. Gaza was allowed to happen, as was Pearl Harbor, says Jim. Um, Any excuse for a war and always the innocent suffer. And that's Jim in Staines. Thank you, Jim, and thanks for the kind words about the programme. Nice to hear from you today, pal. It is uh, coming up now for about a minute, just before a minute past five o'clock. Pedro is listening. Ryan is a brilliant guest, he says. Thank you very much, Pedro. Really appreciate that. Tim says, where did Ryan get the name The Last American Vagabond? We must ask him next time. Next time he's on. Right, that's it for the comments for the moment. It's time for more music. Uh, I've not even got any music lined up. I know. Brutal. It's a Monday. It's a bloody Monday. I had a good Monday, though, to be fair. As far as Mondays go, I had plenty to do today, but it went pretty smoothly, you know. We've had decent weather here today. Started off pretty grim and gloomy, but we've had dry and even sunny weather. So it's been a pleasant enough day today. Let me drag something out of a folder to play for you while we line up Dr. Marcus De Bruyne. I'm looking forward to speaking with Marcus because, well, it's been a long time since we heard Marcus on the programme. I don't know what I'm going to play for you. I've no idea. Oh, we've got some Fleetwood Mac. That'll do. Fleetwood Mac will do. Any, any port in a storm, you know. I'm sure when Marcus is on, you'll have things you'd like me to put to him. So do, via the app and via the website. Monday's programme, The Richie Allen Show, live from Salford then. Now it's just gone past four minutes past the hour of five o'clock. The Richie Allen Show, Monday's edition. Thank you for your messages. Lots of them and loads of interest in Dr. Marcus De Bruyne. I met Marcus back in 2020, in the mid part of 2020. He, he had resigned from the Irish Medical Council. He had um, raised a serious issue about the way the state handled care homes treated people at the beginning of the COVID-19 um, scenario, the, 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 pan, uh, the pandemic, he was vilified by the media and the medical establishment, so he was. Um, he refused to administer COVID jabs. He said that he couldn't, in good conscience, um, give the jabs. He couldn't, you know, acquire informed consent from patients. Nothing was known about the long-term safety of these jabs. And the media in our country went to town on him. He doesn't like words like courageous and hero because he's fairly modest. Um, but, but he is really. And I reckon, and he's not alone. There are, there are a few others like him, GPs, particularly in Ireland. And I think that there are people alive today because people like Dr. Marcus de Bruyne had the courage to say, well, hang on a second, there's something very wrong with this picture. I invited him back on, firstly because he hasn't been on for a long time. I wanted to check in with him and have a general chat with him about excess deaths in Ireland, 
the, the health of Ireland, it, could we talk about Ireland in terms of its health, are people healthy, w- what's happening there? And he sent me a very interesting tweet earlier on about the vaccines. But let's just welcome back to the programme for the first time in ages, Dr. Marcus De Bruyne. Marcus, welcome back. How are you? I'm very good, Richie. I'm very good. And, and thanks very much for that, that over generous introduction. But, um, and I noticed that, I noticed that like many of us, you struggle a bit with issuing out the word pandemic yeah. because I think most people at this stage are, are, well, I shouldn't say most because that's not true. I have to correct myself. A lot of people, um, these days are starting to realize that it certainly wasn't, um, a pandemic that we were, it, it was, there was the word hoax might be too too strong a word to use but certainly it wasn't it, it wasn't the truth of the truth of things we weren't being told the truth so uh, i can understand i empathized with you there when you were struggling yeah. with that word a little bit <laughs> what, what can i say that's right well you know because i've told you i've told you before i i live in a pretty built up part of salford and um, you, yeah. you, you won't be surprised that every third person I meet has an Irish surname. It's a wonderful thing, actually. It's a great conversation starter, Marcus, you know what I mean? Hanrahan, is that right? Tell me, when did your father or grandfather or grandmother uh, come to Salford? So it's lovely. But I noticed back in 2020, I never saw a hearse. And that's the truth. I'm not making that up. I never saw a hearse. I heard from time to time that Mrs. Stacey had been particularly unwell or Mr. Murphy had been in hospital. But I just didn't see hearses. And I was watching the funeral notices for the entirety of Salford. It just wasn't happening. People were not keeling over. And that's, I suppose, where where I kind of came in and that's where we kind of met. There's, There's so much I'd like to ask you. And you've as much as you want of this hour. I don't know what your... A calendar is like between now and six o'clock but we can have as much as you can give us and you can stop any time if you have to run off or, or do anything but I wanted to ask you it's not easy what you went through you're an incredibly modest um, bloke I, I, I know you are I'm not just saying that um, does it feel like a long time ago I mean it's not easy I mean I don't know this to be honest that well I've, I've been in the papers I've been reported upon negatively but I never had anything like what you had when you look back on it is there a bit of trauma there do you have to, does it take a bit of time to get over that? Look, I mean, you know, there, there is, of course, there, there, there's trauma. I mean, you know, one of my colleagues, you know, in, in the midst of, of trying to speak out, you know, attempted suicide. You know, um, of course, there's a huge amount of trauma, you know, and I think you might probably be underplaying your own trauma too a little bit. But when you do get vilified, in the media, you know, I mean, I was labelled as being, you know, a far-right extremist and I was labelled as being an anti-vaxxer and a granny killer and, you know, for for a family doctor who's been administering childhood vaccines for 20 years, you know, um, probably wrongly in that I was entirely unquestioning and had a, a pretty much um, so rock-solid faith in the medical establishment that I was working for, probably up until COVID. I mean, I always had certain degrees of suspicion about things you don't entirely sign up with. But, you know, the nuts and bolts of my my convictions and my beliefs in terms of medicine were, were pretty much in line with, with the establishment. But when, when you're taken from that position, I suppose, and my position, I suppose, I was kind of a little bit of a shining light. I was on the Irish Medical Council, and that's the organization that investigates the bad doctors. So, but I suppose, by definition you would think anyone on the medical council is is one of the good guys so i suppose i would have been a a shining light not only a a a 
a believer in established medicine. I would have been had a very good career. I had a very good, a very profitable practice. I, I, I don't mind saying I had a very good income. I worked very hard. I was a single-handed practitioner. But I suppose it, it, it was difficult in that my entire world was turned upside down. I, I had to give up my practice. I had to resign from the medical council. And, you know, I, I certainly don't wish to say poor me because, you know, I, 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 I was doing well financially at the time. The, the real impact is not in kind of what one loses financially. The real impact is, I think, in what you just said a couple of minutes ago, that you might have been in the paper once or twice. That I was in the paper quite a bit. And I was in the paper with horrible statements like I was prescribing horse dewormer um, to, to sick COVID patients. Now, I supported the, the investigations into the use of potentially using ivermectin, but the things that came out in the newspaper, I've, I never once prescribed it myself because I always tried to follow the guidelines, despite the fact that I didn't agree with them. But the, the difficult thing for me was not losing everything or being vilified in the paper. The difficult thing was considering yourself as being a, a social pariah as being a kind of a one in a hundred, is kind of going home at night and asking yourself, well, am I just some kind of raven egotist who really wants to be in the spotlight and who's just being contrary for the sake of drawing attention to himself? These are the kind of accusations that would be tacked on to, to the your the criticism that you're some kind of egotist. So it's it's it wasn't so much the loss of things or it wasn't so much the kind of the, the topple being toppled from the dizzying heights of the profession. It was that whole sense of being alone in the profession and, and, and not so much that, because that sounds like a bit of a poor me too. It's this sense that not only are you alone, but that maybe you're actually bonkers. Maybe you're not right in the head. Maybe there's a whole army of people around you pointing at you saying that the science that you're talking is rubbish. And I, I mean, I, I, I told you the last time I, when I was on with you, my life since I left school has been pretty much devoted to an academic career in medicine. I did microbiology before medicine. I did general, did a degree in general science, a degree in microbiology. And I'm not blowing smoke up my own arse. What I'm simply trying to say is, is that, you know, I spent 16 years in university devoted purely to the study of science and microbiology was the degree I did before medicine. So I knew, I absolutely knew that what I was seeing and what I was believing wasn't insane. But yet there seemed to be a whole world, including people in my own family, who not only had doubts about me and what I was saying, but they caused me to have doubts about my 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 own kind of mental stability. And that kind of brought me to the brink of a very lonely place. I separated from my wife and I I, I lived in a cottage. We had a little holiday cottage in Leitrim and, and I lived up there on my own for quite some time. Um, you know, walking around the house almost like a psychiatric patient in a in a mental institution, looking out the window, not eating, not talking to people. So, and again, I say that not to kind of look for any degree of of sympathy, but when you say things like "I was in the papers and I was vilified," the impact that that has, the vilification 
the 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 not belonging to society and the reason i kind of like to talk to you and i empathize with your show is is that you're an irishman who doesn't i i don't know if i'm if i'm right in saying this but may or may not feel that you don't belong in ireland because of a little bit of that vilification but you know there's a famous joyce quote that says ireland is the the sow that eats her own farrow you know when ireland produces people that have something to say that 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 have a bit of an alternative view on things that would contradict be it the church or or be it the state there is a a a real danger will be consumed very very quickly and and very very dangerously you know and 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 so certainly it was the it was the isolation that that i felt the most but i don't feel that so much now because i think as i said at the start a lot more people are waking up to the truth that a lot of this was complete bullshit you know and do you mind if i ask this it's a bit personal now first of all i think what he described is the most beautiful description i've ever heard of how of how dangerous it became, our trust and faith in the media, in the fourth estate, because there you are. And of course you weren't blowing smoke up your own arse. It was important that you point out your microbiology degree. You know something is very wrong. You know it in your bone marrow. You know it in your mitochondria. That's about all my biology I remember, right? So you know this. And yet the papers and our relationship with the media is strong enough that it can compel you, put you in that place where you're doubting yourself and you're wondering, is everybody right and I'm wrong? Am I bonkers? And the, so it's, a, it's very powerful that. You know, the media is so powerful. Um, as far as personal relationships and, and the wife, was, was that reparable? Did you repair those relationships? Do you mind me asking? We did repair it, you know, but but my wife was very hurt by this too, you know, and, you know, my, I don't know if you're familiar, you probably are familiar with the kind of, there's a traditional view of the Irish mammy, you know, when I was a kid, if I came home from school and I told my mother that I did something wrong, she'd respond by giving me a belt or a clatter. You know, um, <laughs> because she she then she she'd hit me for having done something wrong. But she in, in, there's another type of Irish mammy who would kind of you know who would hit you for doing something wrong, but not really for doing something wrong, but for for getting caught or for putting yourself <laughs> for putting yourself in the situation where you got a belt. You know, it's not as straightforward to dismiss the mammy and say, oh, my God, how could a mammy be so uncaring? It's Irish mammies are a little bit deeper than that. They don't give you a belt, you know, because they want to give you another belt that the teacher gave you. In many respects, they give you a belt because you stood out of the crowd. You got caught. You made trouble for yourself. Not that what you did was wrong. Not that what you said was wrong and you know my my wife i love her to bits you know she's precisely the same she knew that what i was saying um you know was right she knew that the that the covid vaccine being forced on people and all of these mandates and the the mrna technology and the mysterious nature all the carry on she she knew that like an awful lot of people she knew that but she, she didn't want us our family life to become something that it should never have become that she didn't want us she didn't want me to be bringing home um 
a, a reputation and a, a, a spyglass. You know, I mean, our neighbors, you know, reacted to me differently. People would look at me differently, you know. And, and then we start to get paranoid because, you know, our kids aren't allowed to play with other kids. And, or the, you know, and has that got something to do with all of this? So she she's in we are in a better place we're, we're we're still together but she's very frightened she's very frightened at the notion that the media might launch another attack on people like me and unfortunately i think the media is going to launch another attack on me because now we're in the middle of what's looking like a bit of a measles outbreak if not an epidemic and you know the 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 blame for that measles epidemic is on anti-vaxxers and i'm supposed to be an anti-vaxxer and the, the reason that we have an outbreak is because people aren't taking the vaccine because of anti-vaxxers like me but you know one of the things that that i feel quite strongly about is is that the reason that we may have a measles outbreak or the reason that people aren't taking a vaccine is because there's been a collapse in faith in the medical profession and the medical establishment and it's not because of people like me but it's because of people like the english government and the irish government who blindly followed who policies that are themselves strongly influenced by vaccine manufacturers so it's a it's a collapse in a fate in the in in the medical establishment you know i mean it's it's a very very interesting t statistic, and the HSE have just published it, you know, only two weeks ago. That eighty two percent of Irish healthcare workers, and this is eighty two percent, and this is a figure from the HSE. It's up on their website, HPSC or HSE um, uh, vaccine uptake in Ireland. Eighty two percent of Irish healthcare workers between September, when the COVID booster came available, September of last year, and February of this year. 82% of Irish healthcare workers have not taken a COVID booster. And it gets even worse than that. 62% of Irish healthcare workers have not even taken the standard, normal, traditional flu vaccine. Now, these are the people who are working in the nursing homes, working in the hospitals. These are the people who are actually administering the COVID vaccine. So if you tomorrow were in Ireland and you went and had a COVID booster, there's an 82% chance that the person giving it to you wouldn't wouldn't dream of taking That's it themselves. Remarkable, so isn't it? We're in this we're in this bizarre world at the moment where there's a colossal lack of faith, and that's just the medical profession. But there's a colossal collapse in faith in the medical profession, and I believe that's the reason that we're seeing a rise, not just in measles, but we'll see a lack generally in vaccines and in public health guidance and that's going to cause an awful lot of death and it's not always and an awful bad. lot of suffering that, 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 that's interesting what you describe there is the equivalent like these 82% it's the equivalent of me saying do you want that sandwich Dr. Marcus yeah, Richie, where did you get it? Oh, I haven't a clue. I don't know where it came from. <laughs> you know what I mean? But, but, but you have it, you know. That's about it. Can I just say, and then I want to move on because it's, it's received enormous coverage on this show. But I'll say it because my listeners will call me a coward if I don't say it. I interviewed Andy Wakefield two or three times. Now, you'll be proud, yeah. of, you'll be proud of me as an Irish uh, journalist that I'm not a nodding dog. When I interviewed Andy, 
And when I interviewed Jane Donegan, mm. and Jane Donegan's a lovely woman, when I interview these people, I challenge robustly and I say, well, hang on now, but the government says this and the government says that. I, so I interviewed them. So I, I don't know whether Andy Wakefield is right or wrong, because how could I? I don't know. But I believe in free speech and mm. open dialogue. What I do believe in my bones, though, is, is that Andy Wakefield, he believes um, with every being in his body, he believes that there is a connection between the... Um, mRNA and uh, sorry, sorry, what, what's wrong no, with no, me? The, the uh, MMR. Yeah, the MMR, sorry, and and autism. He believes that. And autism, yes. He's convinced of it. Yes. Whether he's right or wrong, he is convinced of it, Jay. Yeah, yeah. So I'm just saying yeah. that. That's all I, I'm I mean, saying. Look, I, I, all I can say is, is I don't know. Do you know, I, I don't know. My kids have had the MMR vaccine. They had the MMR vaccine because at the time I had and I still do to a certain degree, a limit, uh, probably a more limited degree. I have faith in the medical profession, you know, and, and I do feel, you know, like at the end of the day, if you don't get the MMR, if a kid doesn't get the MMR and the kid gets measles, well, chances are the kid's going to be fine without the MMR vaccine. Chances are the kid will survive measles. You know, most kids the vast majority of kids, unvaccinated kids who get measles will survive it perfectly fine without it. They'll have a bit of a rash. But there is a percentage, you know, and, you know, how much truth we can put into that percentage now is under the microscope, of course. But there is a percentage of kids when they get measles who will get meningitis, who will get severe pneumonia. And there's a percentage of those kids who will die. So, do I take on, I take on the risk of vaccinating my healthy kids who don't need the MMR vaccine. I take on the risk and let them be vaccinated against it, not out of a real desire to protect them because they're healthy, they're well nutritioned, they're living an upper middle class white family in the Western world. They've all the goodies in the world. So I don't, I don't have a fear of them encountering measles. I do it for the greater good. And I think most parents do it for the greater good in the sense that when we do that, if we try and protect society and protect the community and protect the country from a massive outbreak in measles, then we're protecting the vulnerable kids who are on chemotherapy, who are on immunosuppressive drugs. If they get measles or they get measles, mumps or rubella, if they get these viruses, there's a really, really good chance those kids will suffer, a really good chance that those kids will suffer and die. So in many respects, all of us as parents, we take the risk. We bring our children in and we get them vaccinated. We take risks. There's no such thing as a, as a vaccine that doesn't have a risk. You know, if I stuck an empty needle in your arm with nothing in it, you're going to run the risk of cellulitis, of infection, of shock, of a collapse, of a reaction. There's no such thing as a medical intervention that doesn't come at risk. Parents, and I, be, and I speak as a parent, not as a doctor in that respect, we undertake those risks because of a faith in the medical establishment. But that faith, that faith that people had in people like me has been sorely damaged by COVID. Sorely, sorely damaged. Not by COVID, but by government policies. And people like me, and I empathize with Andrew Wakefield in the sense that, you know, I, I haven't read his research, but I empathize with him in the sense that if you open your mouth or you try and publish something that goes against the type of media that sells 
the type of mainstream, you know, stuff that, that generates income and money because it's what people want to hear. If you have something to say against that, then, and it, and it happens to be true, then so much the pity for the truth because they're not going to be interested in that and, and look over your shoulder because they will come after you. They came after me and, and, and I did nothing wrong. I never tried to harm anybody, you know, or, or do any harm. I, and I never advised anyone not to follow the guidelines or to do anything. I simply tried to question the narrative. So, you know, at the end of the day, I, I feel for the guy, I don't know too much about the history of it, but I think that it's this lack of faith in the medical profession that is that that, that will do countless damage coming in it's in, a point in the future, it's a know? point well made there's no doubt about that because not all health advice is is poor advice a lot of it is advice that has been around for years and you're right there is a huge lack of faith or loss of faith again i see it around here in salford Let's talk now about, you sent me a really interesting tweet, we'll talk about that, but I want to ask you, folks are listening to Dr. Marcus De Bruyne, I think we can say Marcus is a bit of a friend of the programmes now, we got to know Marcus back in the summer of 2020 when he was in the maelstrom, we've talked about all of that, um, but don't tell anybody else he's a friend of the programme, he's had enough crap now in the last few years, it's then getting associated with this programme, but it's nice to have open debates where people can talk about anything. Marcus, tell us this, as far as you understand it, look, we keep keep hearing about died suddenly and then we, we go online and there's some dark actors in the independent media they're talking about excess death rates and they're blaming everything on uh, the covid jabs and i suppose it's really difficult to try and ascertain how much of the more than expected deaths can we put down to the fact that the health services ignored people during covid because they just went for covid and covid only how much of that can be attributed to an increase in unexpected deaths and will we ever know how much of it can be attributed to the rollout of the COVID shots? What we do know is more people than we should expect to are dying at the moment. The five-year average, that's the same pretty much everywhere. What are your thoughts on this? Well, you know, I think most people are quite become quite confused when these terms excess deaths and everything get bandied around. You know, um, it's a little bit like, you know, a COVID death. What is it? You know, there was so much kind of lies associated with COVID deaths, you know, in that, you know, in Ireland, at least anyone who died within two weeks of having a, a positive PCR test was was counted as a COVID death. You know, so, you know, I suppose it's important to understand or for, for at least your listeners to, to fully understand what is this concept? that's been talked about in excess deaths. And I suppose, you know, to sum it up quickly, you know, the, the, the basic concept between excess deaths is if you take a country like Ireland, every year we have about 43,000 births and we have about 32,000 deaths. And that number is consistent. So you can say every year, we could, the statisticians can say we're going to have 32,800 deaths and plus or minus a small figure, they'll be right because they, they base that on that's the kind that's the expected or the traditional mortality rate. It's no different to the birth rate, you know, it, it, plus or minus a, a small number. It stays in around the same. So, you know, that's what excess mortality refers to is, is that when you have something like a tsunami or you have a pandemic or you have a, a massive disaster in society, then you would expect that excess that we will have an increase in the mortality figures. 
So, you know, du- during COVID in Ireland, if you go on to any website or Worldometer or anything and ask for how many COVID deaths we had in Ireland, we had almost 10,000 deaths in Ireland that are COVID deaths. So you would think, well, okay, if you have 32,000 deaths per year in Ireland, well, these 10,000 COVID deaths are going to register on the register of excess debts every night an RTE and the national television broadcaster for you know almost a year that we were treated to hundreds of people who were dying in various counties and terrible circumstances ICU all of this we were treated to this number of hundreds of people dying and at the end of the 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 the, the day there was 10,000 deaths so that number should be there somewhere in the excess mortality well the strange thing is is that Ireland takes its policy. We take our policy in terms of uh, literacy rates and health statistics. The, the people who give us those figures are the OECD. So when Ireland is making policy or even when, when the European Union is making policy, it takes its figures, the kind of its, its statistician as such in many respects is the OECD. So the, the OECD did the figures on Ireland um, in terms of our mortality. And it was very, very strange because when they looked at the figures for 2020, how many excess debts did we have? And for 2021, how many did we have? And 22, well, I won't bore you, but we had zero excess debts for 2020, zero excess debts for 2021, and zero excess debts for 2022. And according to the OECD, our mortality started to strangely increase in 2023. Now, a lot of people are saying, well, first they're asking, where did the 10,000 deaths go? You know, that's very strange with the 10,000 COVID deaths are missing from the picture. And, you know, I suppose one shouldn't laugh, but, you know, the Irish government, if you're, any of your listeners want to know, just Google uh, government.ie excess debts and you'll see the Irish government response. And it's very, it's only two pages long. It's not complicated. The Irish government's response, they say to the OECD report is, is that we had no excess debts in Ireland because the Irish people did such a great job in following the restrictions. And now I'll quote directly. And the fact that 96% of the Irish population took the vaccine. Now, they don't mention the fact that the vaccine was mandatory, but, but the fact that 96% took the vaccine, that that's, that's, what, that's why we had no excess deaths. Now, even a, a 10-year-old child, uh, my own children are well aware of the fact that we didn't get a vaccine in Ireland until late in 2021. By February 2021, we only had 10% of the population vaccinated. So we had no vaccine in 2020. We had massive COVID deaths in 2020, but the vaccine somehow stopped us having, and it, like it's, if you think about it, you know, the vaccine didn't arrive no, until 2021, yeah. but it saved all the deaths in 2020. Like it's, it's the government response is ludicrous. It's, 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 it's beyond beyond anything that you would ever consider rational. But the scary thing is, is that the bulk of Irish people at the moment, they buy it. They, they believe it. The majority of people believe this. But you've this given absolute us, Marcus, you've given us the reason though. It's because when, when Luke O'Neill, I used to do a terrible impression of Luke O'Neill. I'm not going to embarrass you by doing it now. But when Luke O'Neill, God loves him, goes on to either one of the commercial broadcasters or RTE, 
they're not asking him these questions, Marcus. I mean, you've you've torn yeah. it you've torn it asunder in in thirty seconds. It's preposterous. I was never good at mathematics. Oh, it is preposterous, isn't it? Can can I ask you about yeah. what and these the, the deaths when they were counting deaths in twenty twenty? Are you still sometimes? Do you? St- I laugh out loud sometimes when I think of reading the Times of London in August of twenty twenty when some journalist in the Times tried to blow the whistle on how they were counting COVID deaths, like anybody who died, if they'd tested positive three or four weeks previously, it didn't matter the circumstances of their death, they were listed as COVID, just because they had a, you know, a positive PCR test. So this, this must have been going on in Ireland too, that people were dying from all sorts of causes, but if they had that positive COVID test at any stage in four weeks or whatever, they were listed as a death. Does that go anyway to explaining it? it, it, it. Richie, it's it's very, very important. And what people don't understand is that the policy in terms of deaths was a policy directive from the WHO. And it wasn't just it happened in England and then coincidentally it happened in Ireland. It happened across the board. Any country that followed WHO policy recorded a positive PCR test in someone who died within two weeks as a COVID death. So if you went into hospital, having broke your leg, got cellulitis and died or fell off a ladder or had a heart attack, if you had a positive COVID test, you were recorded as a COVID death. That wasn't just happening in England or happening. Everywhere. in Ireland. That was WHO policy. Now, the, the strange thing is, is that in Ireland, on, in, in March of this year, we're having a referendum to change our constitution. And and the main reason we're having a referendum to change our constitution is, is that a lot of people in Ireland are apparently offended about any reference to the word mother, that that has to be changed and we have to have more inclusive families that will include, that can include uh, people of transgender, uh, gay couples and that sort of thing. Now, I couldn't give a monkey's about any of that shite. I think it's absolute just virtue signaling shite. But whilst that crap is going on, whilst the whole country in Ireland is going to be galvanized, polarized and entertained with this ridiculous referendum, whilst that's going on, the WHO have a WHO pandemic treaty, which is going through our government houses at the minute, which isn't going to referendum. And it's not going to go to the, and very few people in Ireland are aware of it. Now, the WHO pandemic treaty, what that is about is about giving the government powers to to patch up some of the failures that they had during COVID. So with mandatory vaccines, they couldn't really push those. They couldn't fire people, vaccine passports. It was all very wishy-washy. They had some control, but they didn't have kind of complete control. So this WHO pandemic treaty that's going through the doll, that's that's going to be rubber stamped, whilst the majority of the population are going to be entertained with this virtue signal dance. There's people outside the doll screaming about trans rights, gay rights, straight rights, all of that to, to change the constitution. My point is, is that what goes on in the real world in terms of what you see on the streets and what you see in the mainstream media, I'm starting to be convinced that that's pretty much a distraction. You're right. It's a, it's a game. You're it's right. a game where the clubs are manipulated 
And, you know, I think I'm convinced now, and I'll be called a COVID conspiracy theorist for this, but I'm absolutely convinced that what happened in the pandemic is phase one. I, that was an exercise in control. There was nothing in that pandemic about a dangerous, lethal virus. Nothing, nothing there whatsoever. COVID is a coronavirus. It's a member of the family of viruses that cause the cold, not the flu, the common cold. 20% of colds, seasonal colds, were caused by the COVID, by coronaviruses. So that what went on in the pandemic was an exercise in control. Phase one, I think, would I, I personally would call it. My question is, is not about what went on, not about us trying to correct the rights or the wrongs of history. I mean, look at black America and slavery. Look at the Native Americans and look at Hiroshima and Nagasaki. You know, people make make a life a career out of jumping up and down and pointing to what went wrong in history in the hope that someone's going to come and fix it. They're not going to come and fix it. The, the question that we should be asking is not what went wrong in the pandemic. The question we should be asking is what's coming? What the fuck is coming It's coming next? down the line. Because people yeah. are being manipulated above and beyond anything I could have ever imagined. And when I say these words, I start to wonder myself, you know, at my own fucking Sanity. You know, rational yeah. view of the world. No, no, you are, though, Marcus. You are. Look, I worked at every level of the media. You know, um, I, I like yourself, I'm, you know, I'm a fairly humble bloke. My star was on the rise, you know, at the BBC after me. And I started to think, I started to think along those lines in the mid to late 2000s. I could see it. You know, with the treaties back yeah, home, the, yeah. the the referenda, Lisbon and Nice, and I I began to understand what trading blocks were really all about. Huge trading blocks like the European Union, yeah, yeah. they weren't going to do anything for ordinary men and women like me. Um, that they were about handing yeah. power, concentrating power in the hands of you know a few people. It's much easier to get business done if you can control twenty eight governments as opposed to if you yeah. have to go and make twenty eight individual negotiations. And I began to look into this. What you I wouldn't dream of patronizing you. You're absolutely right. The, the identity politics is a great tool in that toolbox to get people killing yeah. each other along the lines of race, sexual orientation. Yeah. Yeah. While horrible things are going on while they're turning the planet <laughs> into a prison. You're absolutely right. Yeah. You know, and yet Jean Anne is telling me, my friend Jean Anne Crowley, the great actress and great Irish woman, Jean Anne is saying, she says, I'll tell you what Jean Anne says now. She says, Marcus is so bloody right here, yet it's still important, she says, that we vote against this referendum all the same. But he's right. There's the paradox. You're right to say what you're saying. But 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 that might be an important referendum. Now, let me ask you this in the time we have left. Look, look at how bloody quick the time is going. You're listening to Dr. Marcus de Bruyne. Uh, folks, I've never said this ever, but he's one of the favourite people I've had on the programme ever. And I'm delighted he's back. It's been too long. No, you are. I love chatting with you. It's like being back home in a pub having a pint of stout. You sent me... Well, a... we must do that one of these days, Richie. Don't put it on the long finger. No, Next on the short time you're finger. in Ireland, uh, give us a shout. I'm on the East Coast. So I'm not a million miles away. You're not too far from the River Liffey. You're not too far from St. James's no. Gate. So we can have a, we can have a decent point. So, 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 exactly. so, so Dr. Jack Lambert then is a professor of infectious disease at the Mater Hospital in Dublin. And I think he's also shown a little bit of courage, I think. In, he's put a tweet out, and I nearly died when you sent it to me. Now, maybe I'm giving it too much significance. But you said, he says, I'm seeing patients with vaccine-induced long COVID. How common it is, I do not know. 
but it is concerning. And high-risk patients are being offered booster vaccinations every four to six months. Some of my HIV patients have had seven vaccinations at the invite of the HSE. I'm seeing patients with vaccine-induced long COVID. This sounds to me like a very significant revelation by a man um, who has a pretty prestigious job. And it seems to be a bombshell revelation by him. Can you explain what he means, what's going on? Well, it, 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 he doesn't just have a prestigious job. That 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 guy Lambert is the professor of infectious diseases at uh, the Matter Hospital, one of the biggest hospitals in Ireland, a, a teaching hospital. He 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 would be one of the top voices that Ireland would have to offer to itself and to the world on the subject matter of infectious disease. And basically, he's stating in black and white that he feels that long COVID, many of his long COVID patients are actually victims or the long COVID symptoms have been a consequence of the COVID-19 vac- vaccination or boosters. And of course, that is significant. I mean, he's, he's, he's preaching to the converted in terms of, of, of many of us. And indeed, as, as we said at the start of the show, 82% of Irish healthcare workers have declined the COVID boosters. So it's the poor, and I, I hate to use the word, it's the poor general public and the poor plebs who are being herded into these stalls to have the vaccine and the the Irish government and the HSC is still advising babies, infants, pregnant women to go and get the booster, whilst on the other side of its mouth, our highest you know, consultants and professors with the highest appointments in the land are, are, are recognising the, the, the problems. What that shows is really... The, the mainstream media, how it is bought and how, because the mainstream media won't touch something like that. You know, they will certainly, you know, go after people like me. I'm easy pickings. I'm a single handed GP. It's easy to point that I'm possibly a little bit deranged and, and have crazy notions about ivermectin or whatever. But they can't, you, it's like the government and the, 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 the OECD findings. Your only choice that the mainstream media would have to do with something like that is like what the government did with the OECD, is to embrace it and do a kind of an Orwellian animal farm thing, two, four legs good, two legs better type of shit. You know, the, the, there's no hope that that, that that reality will be impressed upon the general public. So what that tweet kind of highlights is not only the fact that these vaccines are dangerous, it certainly highlights that if this, if the professor is saying that one has to have faith that there must be some truth in it, but it also highlights how media operates and the dangers, you know, of, of, of mainstream media and how they manipulate the narrative in a way that has this man's tweet not even noticed and yet, you know, the contrary stuff, you know, uh, uh, the, the contradictions of it all, they're, they're just, I don't know if I could even say funny, they're, they're, they're sickening in a way, you know. But, um, but yeah, I mean, it's, I don't know if too many people listening to your show would be too surprised to recognize that, that the, the COVID booster has massive side effects. But, you know, one final point I'd make on this subject is, is that the, these mRNA vaccines, the genetic vaccines, four of them came out in Ireland um, initially. You know, there was a, a Johnson & Johnson and AstraZeneca and, 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 you know, there was two DNA and two mRNA. The two DNA ones disappeared off the shelves. They just quietly were pulled and there was no no comment in the media. They disappeared. Now, they disappeared because there was huge side effects with the DNA ones. Um, they disappeared and the two RNA ones are left. But this, the, the point that I want to make is, is that 
this is this was novel technology from the start. In in Ireland, we're a country of, of nearly five million people, if you include the north. From the north of Ireland to the southern tip of Ireland, in every medical surgery, in every hospital, in ev- in any clinic, you won't find one single poster or information leaflet informing a patient who's taken this novel experimental type of vaccine. You won't find one leaflet anywhere telling or informing people how they can record a side effect associated with the jab. Not once, nowhere in the whole country. And nobody finds that strange. Nobody, nobody finds that strange. Now, if any drug comes out anywhere, any new drug comes out, there's always a furore about its side effects, but you won't find anywhere. So the point that I'm making is, is that even if if it's taken the professor of infectious diseases to say, hey, I'm seeing these in my clinics, you know, it, it takes some, it takes people being sick. Those HIV patients that he mentions that are very sick, they're real human beings. They're not human garbage who are just going to die and disappear and be forgotten. They're actually real people with families. They're real people with loved ones. They're real people with a short life expectancy who are going to die, who may have made mistakes in life or maybe didn't make mistakes, but they're real people and they're going to die because of what's going on at the moment. And nobody cares. Nobody gives a shit in terms of the mainstream media. No. Nobody gives shit. Is it more like smart? Yourself, I beg your pardon? Well, I beg your pardon for interrupting, but I'm just mindful of the clock. I was going to ask you, is it worse than they don't care? We won't mention any names, of course, but can we now say that at the top levels of Irish Health, so the health service executive, they must be aware that the jabs are causing widespread harm and they must know this. Not only are they aware... That, that doctor that I mentioned earlier, who happens to be, a, we became friends during the COVID. He's an absolute gentleman. Um, that doctor who I mentioned who, who attempted suicide, he and myself and five other physicians in Ireland, probably more, but six that I know of, are currently being investigated by, by the Medical Council. Um, and, and, and there are serious implications when you're under investigation. We've been under investigation for four years. We have to reply to any correspondence. We have to have legal rep. Oh, there's a huge difficulties on our lives as physicians being under these investigations. That particular doctor who attempted suicide, he's under investigation because he told a pregnant woman, he vaccinated elderly people, but he told a pregnant woman who came to him looking for the vaccine, he asked her to go to another doctor and get it from somewhere else because he was afraid to administer it to her. She went home and told her husband and her husband lodged a complaint with the medical council. And now that guy for four years has been under a medical council investigation. And when he came out of hospital after his suicide attempt, he was met at home within two days of being discharged from the ICU. He was met at home with a subpoena from the Irish Medical Council. So make no mistake about it. The people who are going after anybody who opens their mouth, they are vicious, nasty, dangerous people. And what's happening behind the scenes that people don't see in terms of keeping doctors quiet. Like, think about it, Richie. If 82% of healthcare workers didn't take the vaccine, there's a lot in there who would have something to say about it. Absolutely. If they're going to refuse it. But they're not opening their mouth. Because if you open your mouth in Ireland, 
they will come and get you like they come and got my friend and like they're still going after the rest of us it's it's vicious you know and my i suffered my family suffered and certainly anybody who opens their mouth in terms of criticizing the vaccine i'm really surprised that jack lamb that professor um, hasn't, um, that that tweet hasn't been deleted and that he hasn't been vilified in the media. But my guess is that the tactic that will be applied to him is just completely ignore him. Is ignore him. And I mentioned this to you on WhatsApp today. We we, we, we obviously don't expect RTE to report it or to at least invite him no, uh, for no. an interview. My final question for you today is, I know the answer, but I've got to ask it because of everything we've spoken about. If you could go back to 2020, would you either A, look after the people around you and say nothing, or would you do the same thing again? I know the answer to this, but I have to ask that question anyway. Would you do it all again, would you say? I I don't think I would. Um, I don't think I'd do the same again. I, I thought when I was opening my mouth, I thought that there was going to be a swell. I thought that there was going to be other colleagues. I thought there was going to be lots of debate. I thought people in RTE were going to start saying, hold on a second, what happened to these elderly people in the nursing homes? How did they die? You know, are these numbers real? I thought there was going to be as well, but I never really realized how the vast majority of people are actually controlled and herded and how their opinions are manipulated by virtue. Because when you think about it, what drove the response to the pandemic was not people being bad. It was actually people trying to be virtuous. And although we kind of virtue sounds like a bad word now, it is a good word. And being virtuous in an honest way is actually a good thing. And people were wearing masks and, and doing the things that they were doing. And they were do- most people were doing it out of good motives, out of, out of being good people. The vast majority of those good people and their good intentions were manipulated by a small handful of dangerous, unseen people. And this is when I start to sound like a conspiracy theorist. But all of that goodness in people was manipulated into a kind of a a terribleness, you know, a horribleness that I, I never want to be to be face faced with again so i'd have to that's the long answer but the short answer is no richie i would have kept my head down carried on (laughs) made a fortune like the rest of my colleagues i would be sitting in clover now driving a very expensive car and smiling all the way back and forth to the bank every day and my wife would probably think i'm the greatest thing since sliced bread well now she does think i'm the greatest thing since sliced bread but she'd probably have a lot more uh loved love for me and so would a lot of other people so yeah, short answer: No, I wouldn't do the same again. No, and ultimately, I I won't have the final word. I'll give you another fifteen seconds before you wrap up. But ultimately, I don't believe that, and I don't need. I don't think it matters anyway, because when it mattered, when it mattered in twenty twenty, you did do the right thing, and you said, "Look, there's something very wrong." And um, it's great when you do radio and produce radio to meet people like that. And I've met a few in the last few years who did the right thing and I I think the greatest thing to say about that is what I said in the intro 
the fact is there are people alive today because they heard you. They found you on Twitter or they saw you um, when, when you gave a public speech or when you turned up to a meeting or they heard you maybe here and, and they thought, well, hang on a second, he sounds really articulate. My God, he's got a degree in microbiology. My God, he's a doctor. Maybe I might listen to him. So, so there are people alive because of it. Marcus, thanks. If you want the final word, we've got 20 seconds. Um, it was too long. It's been a tonic, pal, having you on today. It really has been. So final word to you and just thank you. Ah, it's, 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 you know, it's lovely to talk to people like yourself, Richie, you know, and look, I I suppose, you know, I'd have to say sorry, you know, sorry to, I think sorry to you, I suppose, it seems as though I'm on your show, because, you know, you were vilified and pilloried as as a as a right wing fanatic, and I was vilified and and pilloried for even appearing on your show. Yeah. And I became afraid of appearing on your show even more often because of all of that, because of the pillaring and the damage that was done. You know, so you know th- there are there are people who have suffered, families who have lost elderly people, and they're suffering. You know, the, the the elderly people who died, abandoned in nursing homes, they were the real victims in all of this. They were the cause of my coming out and my saying something. They they were the t- total victims. They were thrown under the bus, you know. And, and after those, you know, the people who spoke out, people like myself and people like yourself, people who go against the narrative, people who try to exercise what we're told is a democratic right, what we're told makes a healthy democracy is this notion of debate and discussion. You know, all of that, it might be true in theory, but in practice, it's it's not so true, you know. And, and as I said, I, I'm saddened that most good people who did good things during the pandemic we're manipulated into doing it. And I hope, I hope and I pray that people will start to ask um, questions like conspiracy type questions as to who's actually pulling the strings, the WHO, the WEF, these big organizations, what is going on on a deeper level? If we start asking those questions, there might be some hope, you know, but I, I think we have to start asking questions. And, you know, we need good people like yourself um, to be there so that we can have a venue to ask those questions. So thanks for having me on. Richard. You're welcome, Marcus. God speak to you. Thanks for everything. Thanks for coming back today. And don't leave it um, too long. Come back anytime for a chat. I really appreciate your time. Thanks again. Not at all, Richie. Lovely to talk to you. Take my, care. My pleasure. Dr. Marcus De Bruyne on Monday's Richie Allen Show. Massive amount of comments have come in there. I've only got about 30, 40 seconds. I'll read uh, one or two of them as quickly as I can. Um, no, there's too many of them. I can't. And I'm going to run out of time. I've got to get out. Uh, thanks so much to Marcus. Thanks earlier on to Ryan Christian, the last American vagabond, uh, dot com. Appreciate um, Ryan and his time as well. Th- that's it for the programme. I'm back tomorrow at four o'clock UK time with Tuesday's programme. Before that, though, there will be a Papers podcast. The Papers is a relatively new podcast just before Christmas, I think, when I started that. It's it's not much of anything, really. It's just a 25, 28-minute chat about the Papers. It's online by 7.30 most mornings. But if it isn't, and it's a little bit later, hang on, it will appear. So the Papers and then the live show tomorrow. Right, enjoy the rest of your Monday then. Thanks for listening as usual. And more importantly, thanks for your comments. I really appreciate them. All righty. Closing out of the programme today with Crowded House and Don't Dream It's Over. From your BBG in Salford, Sloan Tommel, Sloan Gafol.